Welcome to A Pair of Bookends, the book club you can carry anywhere. We are your hosts and hopefully your new bookish pals. I'm Hannah MacDonald. And I'm Lydia Clare. We are so grateful to share with you another episode highlighting a brilliant new book. The Book of Eve is a daring and magical novel described by our pod bestie Bobby Palmer as the handmaid's tale meets the devil in the dark water. We follow Beatrice, a convent librarian who discovers a book with a voice that's growing stronger. Then when an ancient power uncoils, will she dare to listen? Meg Clothier is the author of three novels and co-author of two non-fiction books. Meg studied classics at Cambridge, spent a year sailing a yacht from England to Alaska, then went on to become a journalist working in London and Moscow. After working for Reuters in their Moscow borough, she returned to London to study an MA in post-Soviet politics. And whilst writing a paper on Georgia, she first read about Queen Tamar and decided not to get an the proper job but to write a novel about her instead and so began her journey as an author and we are thrilled to have Meg with us today to discuss her third and latest novel The Book of Eve so Meg welcome to a pair of bookends. Hi guys thanks for having me. <laughs> You're very welcome we're so excited to speak to you. So what we always like to start with is our little question which is what are you currently reading? I'm reading at the moment I don't reread as much as I ought to but I was roaming along my bookshelves and I picked out The Rome, which is just, I mean, I remember reading it when it first came out, Cormac McCarthy. I think it's probably because he's got another one out at the moment and being absolutely blown away. And I couldn't believe it. I picked it up and read it a second time and every word was still as perfect. Oh, really? As devastating. And it's funny because I'd just gone back and thought, I'll try and read some of his other stuff, his earlier stuff. And I'd read Blood Meridian and you could just feel his evolution as a writer. And it was quite encouraging to think, okay, so you can go from like good to work of utter genius which was inspiring and slightly I've, I've never known someone who can just choose each word um yeah. so perfectly and it's very traumatic obviously the kids were like what are you reading mummy i'm like <laughs> not one for you no and it's short <laughs> I am very embarrassed to say that I haven't yet read any Cormac McCarthy, which is shocking behaviour for a reader. Cuts straight to that one. Cuts straight. I mean, it's all how I said. Well, yeah, that's music to my ears, so I will be ordering that ASAP. (laughs) Firstly, I am so intrigued, um, obviously, researching about you for the podcast. I am so intrigued by your life, which I feel like your life could be a, a book even a film in itself I think you're a really fascinating person and I mean the energy that you've already come to the podcast with I'm already in love with you I'm sorry (laughs) (laughs) I'm a most ordinary person but I mean brilliant thank you but I feel like you know your your experiences so far you know hearing about you sailing a yacht around i'm desperate to ask about that all the different things that you've studied you working as a journalist and then all the books you've written yeah i just feel like your life has, has had so much like adventure and and variety which is just amazing how do you feel that your life has inspired you as a writer and i guess the stories that you want to tell i mean i think it started up i mean i suppose my first book would just drew directly from having spent all that time in russia 
were working. I went I went to Russia really by chance in the mid-90s between school and university, fell in love with it, and then kind of really tried to weave my way to get back there as a grown-up to work. And so I went there with Reuters. And it was while I was there, I went on the most extraordinary walk in the mountains of Georgia in the Caucasus, which was just, you know, one of those moments, those moments in your life where life and work and everything, it's clogging your head up. And then you just get a chance like that to exist in nature with good people, tiny backpack, you know, little fires at night in the middle of nowhere. And so then Georgia became a fascination. And then when I was doing my my studies and I discovered about this queen, I was like, how's nobody written about her? She's like, she's a bit like an Elizabeth the first figure where she's she goes on to take on all the men out there and triumphs and becomes the sort of legendary queen of this beautiful part of the world. And it was such fun writing about her. So I think it was it was bringing in that big part of my 20s, that big adventure in that part of the world, which is obviously now really compromised with everything that we know that's going on in Ukraine, which has been a funny coda to all of that. But then also she's a real classic tomboy heroine, I guess. And that was very much what I was like growing up. So it's bringing like that kind of my personal story of when I was much younger. I was dreadful at being a girl when I was sort of, you know, <laughs> you know, basically from the word go. And so they, they, when my friends read it, they were like, oh my God, wish fulfillment. Look at you leading your army. So I was like, yes, that's <laughs> But, you know, but I know, I mean, it's a kind of a fun, it was a fun novel. And I know that, like, for example, when my daughter read it when she was, you know, a year or two ago, when she was sort of 11, you could see she was just like, yeah, great, go get her. <laughs> I was just going to say, you know, what you just said then about you were quite a tomboy growing up. And, you know, we are sort of told how a girl is supposed to be. And I think, you know, it definitely comes through in, in your stories that you're sort of rewriting what a woman is, is supposed to be and sort of reinventing that with like a strong female protagonist just I really love that <laughs> it's not even a question I just it's really respect that yes yeah, yeah, we need more of that I was thinking in the you know there's that thing with films the Bechdel test where it's like that's a woman to another woman about something other than a man so I realized in the book of Eve that it's like a reverse like I don't think at any point a man talks to a man about anything other than a woman I got the end of it I was like get off <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Although, I mean, it's funny. Although, I think actually, my 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 middle book, The Empress, I think I think I was sort of struggling to bring that across because the heroine in that, she was much less closer to me as a person. She was much more of a kind of girly, use my sexy wiles kind of heroine. So I never felt quite as close to her. I always felt a bit of a tension when I was writing her, and so she was very much, you know, constantly pulling on different men to kind of navigate her way. So that was a different, very much a different story. But then, you know, with the book of Eve, it's all very much yes women leading on women love absolutely. it absolutely and that I, I think that is uh, one of the first things that myself and Hannah spoke about when we first started reading the book and it was just like is this not just filled with really women <laughs> and it's both yeah yes it is <laughs> really there's there, there are lots of lots of the different because you've obviously got like your main characters but because it's you know set in a convent so you've got this huge sort of supporting cast so many of them are like composites based on real women who've been great in my life. I went to this like really nuts, very religious, tiny little boarding school by the sea between the age of seven and 12. Hence my deep connection with Beatrice. <laughs> <laughs> my mother was like, they only disguised autobiography here. And I was like... <laughs> 
<laughs> and so a lot of the so a lot of the nuns are like kind of mixtures of some of my teachers back in those days. Oh wow! Which was really fun writing the uh, the the, the heroine book could be Beatrice. She has the you know the Sophia, who's her kind of mentor figure, but quite scary, quite strict. I had an amazing Latin teacher, and it's purely based on her. Where I'm like, I really respect you, but I really don't want to mess up my verb. <laughs> Yeah, the fear is real. <laughs> yeah, oh, she's real. She's real. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like no privacy invasion well i i mean you can tell well i feel like you can really tell with this novel how well researched it is mm. and again i think some of that research is obviously the time period and the context of the novel but also again just those your own experiences informing the way that these characters are written can you tell us a, a little bit more about your research search process and how that informs the way you write i mean i love i mean i love I love, I mean, I think you can't be a historical novelist if research isn't pure pleasure. I mean, I love, you know, I, I really, I mean, I didn't work as hard as I should have done at university, but I did love it. And the last bit where I was like, right, stop doing everything else. Don't do plays, don't drink. And then I was like, <laughs> locked in the library. I was like, this is, this is dreamy. And so really <laughs> doing research, it's almost like kind of making up for all the work I didn't do at university. And that kind of skill, I can't, I call it like, you know, magpieing. You need to be able to read really, really fast, and not get bogged down and then just be like that, you know, the Little, the little details that are just going to feel true and bring it alive but aren't obviously going to like drag it down plag it down because you know that's obviously the danger you know you don't want to know too much so right. this with the Book of Eve to be honest there was no danger of me knowing too much because Renaissance Renaissance Florence was like totally new territory but you know you start reading and then it's, you get to a moment in your research when you start reading things in books that you read in other books and when you get there you're like okay I'm ready I'm ready <laughs> uh, yeah it was fun because there were so many different angles to research because there was a sort of the straightforward historical angle and then there was the more kind of religious convent angle and then the yeah. women angle and um and also the sort of how at that time people were rediscovering classical knowledge which is obviously fascinating for me as like classics is where I came from sort of academically so at some point you have to go stop stop put the books away and write because the writing's harder obviously than reading I spoke so other people have written but it's one of my favorite parts of the process I really enjoy it. I feel like there's nothing worse than when you you open a, a historical novel or a novel that's got quite a difficult subject matter or whatever, and you can just see that the author is just trying to show you how much research they've done. <laughs> and it's like the smallest of details is like, and they had a golden goblet because it's yeah. only been gold because of this time. And it can be really daunting for people that maybe don't, don't read historical fiction very often. And I found that that was just in no way the case with the Book of at all it felt so so immersive the research that you done really helped immerse the reader but didn't take away from anything it didn't make me feel like I was reading a non-fiction book you know yeah, it, yeah. It, I, I read I think what really helped me is that when I started writing which was right at the beginning of the first lockdown was when the third in the Hilary Mantel trilogy had come out and so I picked it up and I would literally I'd be like reading three pages of her then writing and read three just to try and keep my momentum going I was like I can't do it I was like read Hilary Hilary they're <laughs> constantly amazed by how she does it that I'm not even beginning to say like she's like my title <laughs> writing goddess but it, it's just the odd word that pulls you into the right place it's just tiny it's actually it's, it's something that they 
taught us when I was at, at Reuters, where we had this really rigorous journalism training. And they talk about when you needed to get, you know, big geopolitical background in, they'd say dabs, not slaps. So just like tiny pecs not like kind of in 1960. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so we, wow. I learned a lot from agency journalism, which is kind of the opposite of novels, you know, where you're like, you know, writing really short headlines and judged on how quick you are. But yeah, that kind of economy is really important. Definitely. I love the dubs, not slaps. I think that's one on a t-shirt. No, yeah. <laughs> a really cool saying. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, before you told us that you were at a religious boarding school from the ages of seven to 12, did you say? Yeah. So are you from a religious background? Ironically, no. I, I was brought okay. up a very staunch atheist. <laughs> My parents what happened? <laughs> it was just it was a very good school and it was it was all girls and it really the one thing it really really did is it really respected girls education it was you know in terms of there was no question you were here to learn and you were taken really seriously and there was no sense of like there was no girlification you know there was no sense that you know we ought to be like more pretty or more fun or that, that there was no pink or princess anywhere in the vicinity so I mean it, it worked really well for me I think probably it might work less well for other people but yeah it was it was kind of odd because all my peers were relatively from relatively religious families there was a little chapel in the middle of the school and like I remember everyone else got confirmed one year but not me but it was kind of okay at the same time but I do have quite a lot I mean I have spent a lot of time you know in church and in chapel so I can kind of feel that atmosphere fed convincingly but I went to a very non-religious school after that and that was yeah how much of your time in that boarding school fed into your writing of the the convent and like how much extra research did you have to do for what life is like in a convent the what there's some brilliant i mean it's that amazing thing once you look there are some brilliant books out there that i mean I, there's an amazing book called nuns and nunneries in renaissance florence which like blew the whole thing open for me because first of all it explained just quite how many women were in convents and then it helped me understand how much power they could wield because i think our conception of a convent is quite kind of all oh, poor women locked up bad you know get the to a nunnery you're gone whereas once I started researching I understood that they were kind of they could be power centers and that for the women who were in there they really could work so in in the story you know the stuff that Beatrice is doing you know copying writing creating that's kind of it's not fantastical it's perfectly realistic I'm not saying like loads of people would have been doing this but it was very much business was being conducted there's an amazing woman who wrote huge feminist invectives from inside a convent in Venice you know back in the like early 1600s and you're like for things that you wouldn't believe would be would be possible from our conception of how life might have been for women then. So it's kind of a balance of like detailed research for what's plausible and not plausible. But then I can just just remember the atmosphere of a closed community because I mean the teachers were coming and going and it wasn't a convent. But you know, we, you know, at the start I was going home at weekends, but towards the end I'd only be going home like three or four times a term, maybe. So, you know, you are enclosed. This is your life. And it means that, you know, your relationships are very, very intense and you're very aware of what everyone else is doing and how everyone feels about everyone else did it feel quite claustrophobic in that sense or was it more like a, it was a nice like family sort of vibe it was when i first went like you know beatrice is in the novel i was so homesick i mean you know i was little i was you know and i was quite a i was tomboyish so i'd always played with boys before and then i was in an all-girls school and i wasn't like super good at being sociable i like reading so i remember i mean this is where there's always a little bit of overlap with yourself with your characters so and I remember my first day at the end of the school day
day, I went upstairs to my dormitory and like, you know, curled up in my bed with a book, which was my obvious happy place. And then like quarter an hour later, a teacher came kind of like that kind of worried, angry. I think they thought that they'd lost me. And they're like, what are you doing here? I was like, I I'm in my bedroom. <laughs> what else do you do? They're like, no, no, you must go and play with the other girls. I'm like, Oh, <laughs> because uh, they were all being like kind of, you know, picking ropes and being probably gorgeous, lovely children. But it just wasn't the way that I could manage my interactions then. And so I, I remember, finally, I remember the, the headmaster's wife saying, now, what are we going to do about this? And I said, can't I just sit in the library? And they were like, what, what else about? I was like, I'll be fine. I'm not going to like, nothing's going to they were like, um, okay. <laughs> so there was this just this little room it was a big library it wasn't a big school it wasn't big or grand and um i remember i can still remember the place on the shelves all the willard price novels which were about two brothers having these really like adventure things that was like shark adventure and volcano adventure and i don't think they probably stand up to rereading nowadays um <laughs> but then in the mid 80s i was like give me more i want to go and hunt whales <laughs> I read my way all along those shelves and then slowly I did make, you know, I made some very good friends and had an amazing time. And at the end of five years, I remember when we were leaving, because we were all going to different schools and, you know, there was no, you know, in those days, there was no sense. I mean, I remember just all of us in like catastrophic floods of tears because, you know, we knew that this was the end of an era. And I did keep in touch with some some people from there. But yeah, it's not the kind of place that I think really exists anymore because yeah. I think boarding schools become comparatively crazy expensive. And back then, a lot of the girls there weren't like crazy posh. And it was, yes, funny, very like a kind of out of time sort of experience. So from what you've said, I've gathered that you are pretty much, you were Beatrice. <laughs> <laughs> If I find out now that you've got a book of Eve, I'm yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> where is it? For your eyes. So moving on to a little bit more about the book itself. One of the things that I absolutely loved and that we've touched on a little bit already is this the vast array of, of characters and of their different personalities. What was it like for you to create all these different characters and figure out where they fit with each other? It was really fun. I mean, I remember in the very, very first draft, I wrote like I wrote the first draft during lockdown, homeschool, the whole thing. And I kind of sent it to the publishers because it was it was under contract. So it was that kind of advantage where you could send them something really terrible and know that they hopefully wouldn't buy you. So I just kind of sent it off going, oh, God. <laughs> And their, their notes back were like, well, this is really bad. This is terrible. This is terrible. This is terrible. And like, but your characters are good. So it was something that came early on. And I think it was because they, it's because I was mapping quite a lot onto my memory that I was kind of drawing out an essence of people that I knew and then maybe mixing them up and check. So they felt, they felt very real to me. I think that was the thing is that they weren't, it wasn't like, oh, I need a character like this to do this function. It was like the people appeared ready-made and then I kind of set them going within the story I think that's how that's how it works you know that the scary like second in command nun sister Arcangela she's like I had this teacher she was a, she was so scary it's a pretty <laughs> and, and she was wonderful she was really good to me different from my Latin teacher she was really good to me but she was very there was one time when I was sitting in the chapel at school practicing my flute I'm, I'm musically so inept but I played the flute <laughs> 
And some girls came in and they were a bit like, Hannah, you don't believe in God. Why don't you believe in God? And I was like, <laughs> oh, I just don't believe in God. I'm just playing my flute. And um, they were like, we dare you to um, touch the crucifix by the altar. And I was like, oh, God. And I was not a naughty person. I was not a naughty person. Something about like, you know, when you get a moment of challenge. Yeah. I went up and I was like, yeah, it'd be fine. They're like, God's going to strike you down. I'm like, that is not. <laughs> and I went up and I touched the crucifix. And at that moment, the chapel door opened and my sister Archangela model walked in. And she was like, what are you doing in the house of God? And she couldn't work out what was going on because I was so good. She couldn't believe I was being bad. So she just sort of hustled them out. She was like, what's going on? I was like, that's just looped. And I just, the way that Sister Archangela walks around the convent, inspiring kind of awe and fear. Yeah. Rechanneling my kind of childhood memories. Yeah. <laughs> but also the relationship, you obviously, you've got Beatrice, who's a sort of relatively, you know, shy and socially isolated, but a thick at the beginning <laughs> and her developing this friendship with a very outgoing warm and charismatic painter called Diana and that was it was really nice writing a book where the central emotional story wasn't a love story because that in my first two books I'd done a pretty trad like boy girl romance thing kind of weaving through and in this it was really nice I mean when I look back I have fallen in love and I have a lovely husband but I've had like you know those intense relationships you have with your female friends when whether you meet them at school or, or like it can be on a kind of holiday adventure where you just really connect with somebody or university or since or friends I've made like around like having children and it was really it was lovely kind of honoring that dynamic where you just like connect with another woman and you just like learn something from her see something in her and like how sustaining that is so that was one of the best dynamics that I really enjoyed writing and felt very it felt very real actually it felt very um even though it's not based on any particular person in my life it's based on that like that feeling that moment yeah, I don't know about you, Hannah, but I feel like you feel like you just step into a world where these people have existed for years. Mm. You know, it felt that they were so real to me. That yeah. It was just, it was so good. It really was. But we... that, that's lovely to hear because it's a risk when you write quite an ensemble piece. It's yeah. a risk that you can't quite keep track or they're not distinctive enough or, or they're too caricature-y and not like real enough. But I mean, we've spoken on the podcast before about like how we've always had kind of like a definitely me. I'm, I know Lydia sort of does. She's probably a bit more open to historical novels than I was. But this podcast has really forced me to like challenge my bias against like historical novels. I was always really afraid of them. I don't know why. I think, I mean, me and Lydia have said that it is potentially because we're working class and we're worried it'll make us feel like we're not intelligent enough to read them. Some of them can be quite dense. But certainly with yours, the, the cast of characters especially, they just felt so real and relatable. And like Lydia said before, it just totally immerses you into that world and it you know it is thanks to that cast of characters that I became so immersed in it so yeah I'm just really grateful that I'm starting to enjoy you know I'm <laughs> stepping out of my comfort zone and yeah. really adventuring into these amazing books I just really enjoyed the way you wrote that they're cast of characters so thank, thank you, you. <laughs> thank you well I'll just thank you to them <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to say what do you normally like reading but I know that that's maybe a lot you're not meant to reverse the questioning <laughs> no I love that <laughs> I'm what they're reading. I love contemporary literary fric 
friction because I've been listening to the literary friction podcast today. Literary fiction and contemporary fiction are sort of like my go-tos. I love like a memoir, but yeah, sort of venturing into historical fiction. I mean, I'm I'm fairly open in terms of fiction, but historical fiction has always been something that's just like really like scared me. (laughs) But yeah, since about like bench, you know, we've read a couple of books this year that are historical fiction and we've just really enjoyed them and been blown away by them. And I'm like, oh, it's just totally like turned what I thought on its head and I love it. It's that thing that you can say they can be be quite conservative or they can be quite context heavy in a way that's not really fighting. And I think, I mean, I mean, I love historical fiction, obviously, (laughs) but I I totally get where you're coming from. Totally. And you were were saying before about how you first sent this off and you were like, oh, they can't, they can't find me because I'm in this country. (laughs) But still, you you were were scared. Um, And you... (laughs) You wrote in your acknowledgements, was it an editor that told you to turn the magic up to 11? Yes. I think that's the best note I've ever heard. That it was note. brilliant. It's that it's that thing that he, he's very, he's very, very insightful. He was like, you've created a world that's really, really convincing. We believe you. We believe the characters. So if something crazy magical happens to the characters, we're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Because like, you know, there obviously are some like totally insane, fantastical things that happen throughout the book. And he was like, if you believe them, we will. So I kind of, between the like second and third drop, I basically like, I basically had to like convert myself to like passionately believing every single thing that happened in it rather than like slightly shying away from it going oh this is stupid nobody will believe this and once I believed it then you could like go and then I think it does it does land it's a really really good lesson but you don't need to yeah you definitely took that note and ran uh, because that final part of the book is oh. like one of the most without I'm not going to give any spoilers but it's so like cinematic and I was like what the kind of the, the scene inside the chapter when I started writing I was like can I make this happen and, then you're like, <laughs> and it felt good actually well I'm ready for an adaptation when you are so when are the rights being bought for it yeah it's really nice you know this this thing that's been all inside me just with me and the editors for such a long time god it's nice it's so nice to talk to people oh, and, and I saw before that you've got loads of events coming up as well which is really exciting yes no, are you excited really... or are you nervous i did one last i did one last weekend and one of my one of my best female friends like came with me and it was like having a mini entourage she was yeah. amazing. <laughs> in cambridge and she was just like i'm gonna do your socials i'm gonna take photos and tell friends no i've got this tea i've got your gin she was <laughs> it was a little event but again it was lovely because the, the, the woman who ran it was gorgeous and made this kind of really warm atmosphere and it just felt like a conversation and i mean I was really nervous before, but I think the nerves are going away slowly. Good. In, in, enjoy, enjoy. Yeah, yeah enjoy it. Absolutely. Yeah. You've earned it. So I really wanted to talk about, um, there's a section in the book and I didn't want to give any spoilers at all because I want our listeners to read this and enjoy it in the same way that we did with sort of like no prior prior knowledge except a blurb. And there is a section in the book where there is a memory that's evoked by smell. And I've been very vague here and it's... <laughs> about roasted chestnuts and the roasted chestnut story is I think my one of my favorite parts of the book because I felt like the book and your writing style certainly leans into the the sensory and in turn that sort of creates a really sensory reading experience for the reader what do you think sort of draws you to this attention to detail of of the environment that your characters and how are inhabiting I think it was it's like the smell things that's really funny my friends always tease me that I'm constantly smelling things 
things. <laughs> and somebody was like, doing this, and like, bag, bag, bag. <laughs> oh, God, when I got COVID and I couldn't smell. I'm oh, it's horrible, isn't it? Miserable. Oh, God. I mean, and then the food thing goes because, you know, love cooking, love the smell of cooking, everything to do that. But I think, I think it was funny because, because I was writing it all during lockdown. I suppose I was so, when you're so locked in one place, you're kind of noticing really small things the whole time. I think it was probably, in some ways, it might have been to do with that. There were no kind of big vistas, big sights, big sounds, big impressions. It was all quite small. So you know, whether it's the touch of the stone or the smell of this or the kind of the sight of the plump pudding or the kind of the rasp of the cedar tree, or all these kinds of little details. It's probably because I was doing the same thing day after day after day that maybe maybe that was, I mean, I can still, I did the same walk with the children every single day. We call it the dank trudge. And sometimes I say, <laughs> oh, go and like go somewhere else. They're like, no, let's just do the trudge, mum. <laughs> like I can still, you know, the, the gloop of the mud. And, and I think, I mean, I think it might, weirdly, it might link back into to sailing is that when when you're crossing oceans there's absolutely nothing to look at so you get really fixated on really small things like the sea add like slightly different changes in the cloud or slightly different shifts in the wind and I think that maybe I got tuned into like that kind of noticing back then that might be another reason which I never thought of before but that suddenly connects in my head right now you've definitely <laughs> got like a great relationship with the environment and with nature and I think the book that you wrote with your it was with your brother wasn't it yep. sea fever and and then there was the countryside one as well, wasn't there? Yeah, with my dad. With, oh, with your dad? Oh, okay. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, the, the C one with my brother and then coming out in like two or three months, country, country one with my dad. Yeah, Amazing. Wow. And so you've got quite a big relationship with, with nature and yeah. the, the the ocean. Ironically, like very much late developed. Like when I was growing up, I I mean, I grew up in the countryside. I grew up where, where I live now. And, you know, I was so uninterested in it. I wasn't like these kind of gorgeous young nature writers who like are connected with the natural world i just wanted to sit in a darkened room watch black adder read data beddings <laughs> eat that you know, like my like a classic day in the holidays would be my granny. She lived next door, marching in the TV room, going, "It's gorgeous outside. Get out!" <laughs> and I think it's it's grown very much. And I think it grew from the sailing, where I think I was drawn to the adventure side of it rather than the natural world side of it. But in retrospect, I mean, the unbelievable privilege of being in that genuine wilderness for like weeks and weeks at a time is is. I mean, I did appreciate it at the time, but oh my, I mean, it, it was incredible. It gave me those experiences and. And then, then connection to the natural world has grown up much more, probably with children in my 30s. And then I moved out of London five years ago, back to back to the countryside where I grew up. And then sort of since then, I've just really, really settled in, you know, done all these sweets. I love it. I think I'm still in my, I'm still in my what's tits and black out of face. <laughs> Embrace <laughs> it while it lasts. Embrace it while it lasts. I think I saw a tree about, you know, once every four weeks while I lived. Yeah. I just didn't see daylight. I was just like, <laughs> in the bar, sleep, get up, go back. Oh, yeah, different, different periods of life for different things. So one thing that I really wanted to talk about, and I know it's something that me and Hannah have discussed a lot when we've been talking about the book itself, and that's power and women. Yes. And the theme. Our favourite. Um, <laughs> our favourite thing. But this book does power and women in a way that I've not seen for a very very long time if ever really and a quite a bold statement to make but when you read this book listeners 
listeners, you will know what I mean when I say that it just completely puts the relationship between power and women on its head completely. Can you tell us a bit more about how you wanted to write about power and its relationship with women at the time? I think what I was thinking about is that I was thinking how there's no reason why power dynamics ought to be the way that they are, but that just how, you know, layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of, of culture has created the world that we're familiar in. When, you know, lots of ways things have improved enormously for women in the last 100, 200 years, or certainly the last 500 years, but in lots of ways I don't need to spare anything out. They they haven't. And I think I wanted to kind of tell a story that went right back to basics and just tried to imagine a different way of being, but in a way that wasn't purely fantastical or utopian, but a way that could just open a door to say that if we told ourselves different stories, maybe we could have a different world because the kind of stories we tell create the world that we live in. I mean, I remember, it's seared on my memory. My daughter was five or six and we were walking down the steps into her primary school classroom and on Friday they could um, dress up more. And she was wearing, she had a kind of Batman cape on and a little boy did the classic like, oh, girls call this superheroes day. And she was just like, oh, my God. And that's it. she took her cape off and gave it to me and I was just like, oh. No. And I spent the whole day assembling a montage of like woman power clips on video. I was like, and then sat down and I showed her. And I mean, I should have the, I'm such a Tolkien sat and I like to apologize in advance. Um, people was like, don't talk about Tolkien. I was like, I'm not. And I like the um, I I showed her. I mean, she was only tiny, but I showed her. You know the the, the climax scene where where Eowyn, you know, no son of man. I'm like, I don't want them to smite me and destroy me. And my daughter, I just remember her watching it, just being like, okay, yeah. <laughs> she, she's never looked back. And I'm not equating, you know, female power to the power to wield a sword. There's so many different kinds of female power. And actually, it's very much. I enjoyed writing a book where the power isn't kind of. It isn't like not really like girl boss power. It's not like I'm kind of out there doing things better than men or I can fight too or I can it's a much more diffuse broad kind of real sense that's inspired by my sense of real women in my life who are powerful in a way that's nothing to do with necessarily labels of what they've achieved but they just have this confidence and they exude a kind of they attract a kind of respect just from who they are rather than from necessarily kind of boxes they've picked but actually interestingly as a little sidebar I did remember thinking I couldn't have put together the same reel for my son to show him different images of boys being kind, tender, all the things that he is and I praise in him like daily. It's a lot harder to find that show reel for young boys today and that's something that I feel kind of equally, equally as strongly about that everyone needs different options, different ways of being. Yeah, I I have a three-year-old daughter and a two-year-old son and I'm very aware of how I speak to them and what language I use when I say words like strong or sensitive or you know how are you feeling to them it's very much you know I think we have to be more aware nowadays of of how to uh how to speak to kids on that level to make sure that they're not then hopefully not going to go into too much of of their life with their unintentional bias against their own genders or other genders there was a very good program a little while ago now where they they showed a class and they showed the teachers the intentional bias that they were doing like 
the girls being like, all right, love, well done. And the boys were like, wow, well, mate. And just, yeah. they were lovely teachers, absolutely doing their best and gorgeous children. And then you're just creating this sort of, yeah. but it, it's amazing because it's something I've always been so conscious of. And it's sort of, it's worked, I think, that you know that you can, you can sort of pick and choose all sorts of different ways of being just depending on who you are rather than on, you know, something coming from the outside. You have to be so like mindful of like feeding into sort of dangerous gender stereotypes. And I think, you know, historically and socially, like we've been taught to be a certain way and we have to fit into these certain boxes and stuff. And I mean, just what you're saying then about teachers, um, I currently work in a school and we were doing uh, Circle Time today, which is my favourite. <laughs> and the class had to put these pictures of people in certain levels of stress in an order. And there was um, a picture of a woman stood cooking, holding a baby with another child tugging at her and the teacher saying, oh, you know, like, where, where do you think this fits? And the boys were all like, I, I would say that's a zero. That's a zero. That's not stressful. And all the girls were going, no, that's a 10. That's a 10. And I'm like, what are we fascinating? Yeah, it was how, so... How old were the kids? And they're eight. They're eight. So, yeah. Fun. Yeah, and they, yeah, yeah, that was... Okay, that's, I'm gobsmacked. That's an amazing... Yeah. I'm going to take that anecdote right there. And <laughs> it was fascinating. Use it. Yeah, it was fascinating. I was like, wow. And I mean, yeah, I'm so interested in, in gender stereotypes. And I feel like certainly in a lot of religious texts, I'm not a religious person myself, but one of my close friends is from a heavily religious background. And I am always asking her lots of questions because I find the whole concept of religion really fascinating. And obviously, see the title of your book is the book of eve and the story of of eve you know it ha the, the name eve just has so many negative connotations you know seeing women as the perceptions of women in religious texts are just so damaging you know it's women as the sinner women leading men into temptation could you tell us more about the choice for the title and and sort of what what did you want the readers to sort of take away from the book in terms of perceptions of women yeah i mean i think i'll be really honest i don't know the title came quite quite late when we were like, we need something that says like women and books. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I think on a Zoom call, I was like, Eve? Like, yes, yes. <laughs> I, I love it. And it was, I mean, it was, I'm trying to think. And I think I wrote some, there's a chapter, I think it's kind of about, it's like a big end of act. I think it's the end of act one or act two in my head, where somebody says, you know, be careful of letters. They call them the letters of Eve. I was kind of laughing at myself while I was writing it. But sometimes you have to, sometimes you have to bring some like structural drama into something. So I think it was just like, so a, a reading can pick it up and go okay I sense what I'm going to get here but I think that what it was really connecting to was it was just when the penny dropped and I was like you know I'm not religious per se but I've been you know been to religious schools and we're brought up in a society where where you know there's an established church you know the queen gets crowned in church you know we all know that there's you've got certain obligations at schools haven't you to have an assembly mm -hmm. the religious element and it's a patriarchal religion and it's just that nuts thing that you just kind of go along with it and then you stop and you go how will things be different while our lives are structured under this umbrella of a and it's hard because you know I understand from the point of view of a religious person but there's so many other different messages in Christianity and in some ways you could definitely envisage a Jesus who's really bucking gender stereotypes of his day like and you know initially you know he, he was very attractive to women as, as a figure because he wasn't he was you know the ultimate anti-patriarchal man in lots of ways and willing to suffer and be weak and you know all sorts of radical concepts but that was the historical Jesus but what we know what we've been 
left with. And I think it just infuses so much thinking where, you know, the one prayer everyone knows is our father. And how does that seep down into our consciousness? And I think I was really, when I started writing the book, I had a much more, I had an adventure story in mind more. And then as the book grew, then I realised that that's what I was trying to say. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be interrogated about the sort of patriarchy and the patriarchy in religious communities and within the church. My, My friend that I was speaking about before, when she was younger, you know, she came from a time of being part of the church and having to wear like purity rings. And it's just, you know, what is taught in those churches in regards to like gender and like the roles of, of a girl and a woman. It's just, it's so damaging. And yeah, I just really liked the way that, that you've like explored the treatment of women in religious communities because I, I'm just so fascinated by it and fascinated by how they've managed to get away with it for so long. <laughs> and the thing, the thing that I learned actually, the thing that sort of shifted my thinking slightly was realising that when religion used to be such a central part, a mu- even more central part of life, you know, in the sort of late Middle Ages, that even though it was a patriarchal religion, that women could get power through religion. And so the sort of the, the mystics, the women who did have this really close connection to God and who were believed to have this close connection to God. It's one of the few ways, you know, short of being like born the daughter of a king, that a woman could achieve a kind of autonomy or an independence or a power. And so it was kind of balancing that in the story of wanting to kind of, I mean, I think in the book, religion is is real to people and people believe in it and sort of wanting to show how religion doesn't necessarily oppress women. It can be something that liberates them at the same time. I mean, it's, it's actually something that my I think my mother said to me, she was like, I was really surprised when Renee is this is a very spiritual book. So because people's connection with different spiritualities in it is quite strong and quite felt rather than being a kind of like, we must get rid of God. It's more maybe we have a different relationship with our concept of divinity, um, especially then when God was an entirely ordering principle for everybody. Mm, absolutely. Oh, I could just listen to you speak all day and all night. <laughs> it's terrible, isn't it? I could just literally, I'm like, looking at the time like, no, we are not running out of time. Oh my god, we're gonna yeah. stop. Oh, wow. How has that happened? I thought we were just like barely scratching the surface. I know, I know. I think this is the, the one of the things about this book is that literally it has so much in it, so no much in it that you can talk about. I think it's going to make a really great book club book as well mm. because I feel like people are just going to love discussing this. Yeah. Because it's just got so much to it. It is really, really a wonderful book. And just before I let you go, I really wanted to read this little bit of a quote out from all our bookends who love books because Beatrice, our protagonist, she does adore books. And there's just a little, little quote here that I wanted to read you about books. And it's a bit just talking to her friend, Thomas. And Thomas says, he once spoke of how he feels when a new book lies before him. His hope, his longing that something rare, something precious might lie between its boards. And it's just absolutely incredible. And something rare and something precious does lie in between these pages. So please, please go out and read it. (laughs) Really, Kai, thank you. I also have a favourite quote and I can't let you go without reading it because I loved it so much and it was about what we were just talking about and it is many a man has found his way into an honest girl's bedroom by calling himself a god and I was (laughs) 
you know, it's not, it's not my line in the acknowledgement. Uh, yes, I, I did read that. I, I read that, but I was just, it's such a powerful oh, quote. Uh, it just, it's so good. And, I, there, you know, there's so much strong pick in that quote. I just, it was incredible. Like, yeah, the kind of the secret mentor of, of the whole book was this woman, Marina Warner, who, if you're listening, go, go and read every word that Marina Warner has ever written. She's an incredible woman. Before we let you go, you know, begrudgingly, to finish, I'd love to know what books and authors have inspired you well i think actually it's probably it's actually probably pulling out some things that i things that i've said so i mean my perfect writer is hillary mantel i just i just don't know how she does it how she is so wise so warm so funny so sharp so dark so and there's no like there's no chaff there's no showing off i just i, I was so devastated when she, i mean you know devastated as somebody who's a reader rather than as a person in her life but i just think she's amazing i think she's probably been the strongest like sort of idol in my life as a writer and then this woman marina warner who's just an extraordinary thinker about how women and religion intersect i read she wrote it quite a long time ago this book called alone of all her sex which is an examination of the virgin mary in sort of religion and literature and that just that opened my eyes to a way of thinking about religion that wasn't just going oh i'm not religious it's not something for me never mind put it over there and thinking about how it does affect me and how it creates our world even if it's not something that we personally feel so i think they're the two women that i find most extraordinary and i really love jenny cooper (laughs) (laughs) on a totally different note i just i mean i i remember i'll just say this with my parting shot i remember um because you've got two little ones it made me think of it i remember in my maternity classes they were like uh write down things you need to take in your hospital bag and everyone was like oh nappies nappies and i wrote book and she's like don't be ridiculous you know and i was like i well, I will. <laughs> On the first day, I was there with rivals and a cup of tea. I <laughs> I had good omens. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I'm going to take that. I was like, what did it? And that, all these people around me like, what are you doing? I'm like, a book. it's a brilliant time to read. Read, yes. <laughs> yeah. I also thought, what else are we going to do? <laughs> I thought Lydia a book to take with her when she had her second child because I knew she would read anyway. Once you're a reader, you're always a reader. Like, yeah, you'll take a book anywhere. I'll go anywhere without a book. It's terrible. That's beautiful. Yeah, not like a little cat or a baby grow. No, no, no. A book to take in with her in labour. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it was a great book as well about like about child about child rearing and like labour and delivery and stuff. And it was so good. I think it was like by Clover Stroud. Clover Stroud. Yeah. I was like, you know what? This is just exactly what I needed. I was reading it and like my baby next to me and I'm like, hey, I'm going to be a boss mom. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I am so sad, Meg, that we are having to let you go. There is, like we said, there's so much to unpick with this book and we've, like you said, we've barely scratched the surface. Like, you know, there's bookends, just go and buy it. You know, listeners, you need to be ordering this book. I'm going to put a link in the show notes to, to order it. It is amazing. And as Lydia said, it would be a great book club pick. We started out as a an online book club during lockdown before we changed to a podcast. And I would have absolutely had a field day with this book uh, during book club. So yeah, you need to buy it. You need to read it, listeners. And Meg, is there anywhere that our listeners can follow you on social media? I am very newly on Twitter. Do come and find me on Twitter. <laughs> on Twitter. I was like, yeah. Yes, they're like yes. Um, <laughs> really, social media not. So you can find me there. Amazing. Very nice. 
Yeah. I will I will link that in the show notes also. And I know you've you've literally just published this, but is there anything else that we can look forward to from you? Well, the book of essays about the countryside with my dad is out in June. Which sounds gorgeous. It's part fun, part serious. There's a kind of it's basically like all my dad's like wisdom about like trees, vegetables, animals, and then all my kind of bookish like oh, think about it this way. <laughs> and there is another novel in the works, but it's at that very kind of base age. But it is, it will be. I will be back, and you will be yes, back to the podcast. Back. <laughs> right back, right. Yes, please. I am also going to slip in a recommendation for our listeners. If you enjoyed this episode, there is a fantastic episode on the Relatively podcast, I think it's called, but I will link it in the show notes that you did with your brother, Chris, um, which I very much enjoyed today because I am one of four girls. So anything about sibling relationships is, I say everything is like catnip for me, but that is <laughs> anything about sibling relationships I'm a sucker for. So that was a really great episode and I loved listening to it. So yeah, listeners, go listen to that as well if you've not had enough of your Meg fix. <laughs> but please do go buy the book. And if you enjoyed this episode of A Pair of Bookends, please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe as it helps us to reach more listeners thank you so much meg for joining us today we've loved talking to you and goodbye <laughs> <laughs> thanks ladies and thank you thank you